The glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory lane, it's time to start the show. The Cory Days, the Cory Days, the Cory Days, the Cory Days. Welcome to The Gory Days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. Kyle Leone here, your host for another week, and what a week it is. It is, if you're listening to this as it comes out, almost Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving as we near uh, the, gosh super spreader event of the century. I don't know what my guests' plans are for Thanksgiving, but I'm still up in the air. I don't know if I'm going to be visiting my family or if we're going to be having a Zoom Thanksgiving or whatever. But for everyone else out there, I'm personally going to go on record and get up on my soapbox of saying, don't visit your family. I'm sorry. Don't. Stay at home. Uh, if you have to, then like do the little car, like hang out in your car six feet apart or whatever, or just do hors d'oeuvres out in the backyard. It's just not safe out there. But this isn't a podcast where I tell you what to do. This is a podcast where we talk about movies. And uh, just like the previous weeks, I've got a guest this week, a fantastic guest. In fact, she's the other half of Little Monster Pictures, the creative director. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we had Jen Bertling on to talk about I Am Legend, and she told us a little bit about Little Monsters Pictures. But I'd love to know about uh, the person who actually likes horror movies and what she thinks about it. So this is her first time on this podcast. I don't know if she's been on any other podcasts. Maybe we'll find out. Please welcome to the Gory Days, Kathy Kadisis. Yay, you did it. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. I know. My, la- my last name's a little complicated. It's Greek, so, you know. Okay, uh, it's not it's not as like Leone. My last name, I would get a bunch of like Leone, Leone, Le, uh, Lee One was one of my favorites. So well, lo- I, I'm happy I could get it right. A lot of people think it's my first name sometimes, and they'll be like Christy, Miss Christy, please come forward. And I'm like, oh no, uh, hi I, guys, <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm happy to have you here too. I didn't realize you were Greek. Is that uh, where you're from, or? Yeah, so I am uh, South African Greek. I was born in South Africa. Um, and my dad's Greek and my mom's South African. I lived five years in South Africa, five years in Greece, and then I traveled all around the world, um, going to American international schools. So that's how I got my my American accent. Yeah. How exciting. Mm -hmm. So then after traveling all over the world, how did you end up in LA? Uh, so basically I started my master's in New York, uh, in film school and then finished it over here. And then I've been here for 10 years and, uh, never leaving. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Kathy, you have a master's in film? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's incredible. <laughs> Thanks. I had no idea. Yeah. I should have done more research. <laughs> <laughs> totally fine. Um, so uh, a master's in film, mm-hmm. the creative director of Little Monster Pictures. Yep. That's your brainchild, right? Jen kind of jumped on, but how, how did that happen? Uh, I've My dream has always been to have my own company, my own production company, and help, um, you know, take ideas little monsters that i call i call like our ideas like our brainchilds are our little monsters and i think we each have them inside of us and we're a little scared of them sometimes and a little scared to bring them to life and i wanted to create this place where people can come to me no matter how obscure how weird because i run towards weird i don't run away from weird (laughs) Uh, i want them to come to me and be like look i have this idea and then i have all the resources to put this idea together for them um, and help them cultivate that and, um, make them feel safe. And it's, that's what little monster pictures is. 
Yeah, I remember just for listeners of the show, Kathy and I connected off mic about a week ago, and she was telling me about this, and it was the craziest thing. I don't think I'd ever shared this with anybody, but that when I used to work at a gymnastics place, I would draw pictures with the kids, like during kids' club or whatever, and I have generalized anxiety, so I would draw this little monster on my shoulder, and they would say, oh, what is that? And I would say, no, that's my anxiety monster. He hangs out sometimes. (laughs) I love that. that, (laughs) I love, love, yeah, the the kind of like kindred energy, too, and then... I don't remember how the Beanie Baby story came up, but that was an interesting one, too. Oh, it was because I said that I watched Child's Play when I was two, and then I would line up my dolls and tell them, and my stuffed animals, and tell them at night to protect me, and I would kiss each and every one of them so they didn't feel left out, but I would sleep with one in particular, but they would all had to protect me. <laughs> That's right, because I would do something similar. I would line all of my Beanie Babies in a ring around my bed and would tell myself that they were protecting me. It's so funny, these like little rituals you do as a child to cope with like the unknown fear of the dark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, 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 oh, one little thing too that I, I still do. Um, I watched Alien really young as well. And so I developed this habit of just cover, like having my nose come out of my covers. So like the face huggers <laughs> couldn't come onto my face. So you could still breathe, yeah, right? Exactly. Because that was always that was always the thing you wrestled with as a child is okay, I'm safe under the covers, but it gets so hot and hard to breathe. So I have to figure out this kind of mechanism so that I could still breathe but feel safe. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm like sweating bullets underneath there too. <laughs> so when I was talking to Jen, uh, it was under the idea that Little Monster Pictures is this uh hub of mm-hmm. creative people where I could bring either like a half-baked idea that I really don't understand where it's going to go and you would help me develop it. Or even if I had a finished script, you could like connect me with the right people to make that a reality. Exactly. Yeah. So I also, what I'm doing is I'm putting artists on my website and I want, you know, like, let's say you come to me with a finished script and you're like, I want to make this. I'm going to have a whole list of directors, um, you know, DPs that you can meet with and then we can help put the perfect team together for you, you know, and, and then the same with like, even if you have just an idea, we'll have some writers that you can connect with and they can help you, you know, like, um, just workshop some ideas. Like I just want it to be a place where you can come and you can, you can have all these amazing artists ready for you to, you know, pick, pick at, you know, and just to have them be part of your team. That's so nice. Cause I feel like that's when I moved here, I told myself and thought, oh, it's going to be so easy to find collaborators. There's like hundreds of them at coffee shops and all you have to do is make eye contact and chat with them. But it's, it's not, it's not like college no, out here. No, it's, it's not, not. It's not, it's not this like quad of people just like looking to connect with each other. It's hard to find people who not only like work well with you, but also like challenge you and support you in that way. So like a place like Little Monster sounds so great where I could find that collaborative team. And so like what you've done already to kind of show what your what your crew's capable of disadvantage is so impressive. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. So were you the one who was more into Dungeons and Dragons? No, it's my boyfriend. He's the one that he's okay. like obsessed with it. He plays like four times a week. It's his uh it's his obsession. <laughs> and I learned so, about it through it, through making it. So for listeners who don't know, Disadvantage is um, a production of Little Monsters Pictures that's like the office meets Dungeons and Dragons. Um where it's the thing that I was so impressed with, I don't remember if I mentioned this off mic, but, and I mean this as a compliment, the accessibility of it, that like, 
I've been sitting here in quarantine, you know, like writing stuff and doing stuff and just thinking, oh, I can't wait until things get back to normal and I can have my friends over again and we can record this stuff. But like I have an apartment that could be a set. I have a million things that I could just be doing and that like grassroots idea of not waiting and just doing it yourself was really inspiring. Uh, And not to mention, it's really funny. Yeah, thanks. I mean, we look. You know, if you have an idea, there should be nothing stopping you. We created a living a living set at our in our apartment for about four months. We were filming. That's right. It was your place. Yeah, it was our place. You know, the set didn't move for four months. We shot two nights over uh, almost every weekend. We did give a break every now and again. That's why it took us four months. But we did it, and you know, we made it possible. Uh, we had friends that just wanted it to be a part of like a funny show and act and just have fun. You know, people just want to play. So that made it great for us. And, you know, we had developed relationships with amazing people as well. Um, And everyone just wanted to collaborate. It was very collaborative. And it seems like a lot of those relationships you're talking about carried over into this new project, Off Limits. Yeah, yeah. So Megan, who plays Sarah in our um, in Disadvantage, she this was her directorial debut. Um, for off limits. So she, we, and then she asked me to come on as a producer and then, you know, became a little monsters, um, production as well. Uh, so yeah, off limits where, and that's, that's, what's so great, right? Like you just cultivate these relationships where you help each other and you, uh, you're, you both just want to be a part of this, this world of playing. That's how I see it. And you're playing in another game and like this weekend you're playing in one game and then the next weekend you're playing in another game. Yeah. Um, and I know Off Limits was a Kickstarter. Is that still something that listeners can contribute to, or uh, is that closed? The Kickstarter is closed now. Yeah, okay. we actually uh, we hit our goal. We we went over by about congratulations. Thank you. About like a thousand five hundred, which was amazing. Um, wow. Yeah, that was an amazing experience as well. We shot that in three days. Uh, we used my apartment again for like one of the main <laughs> locations. Reliable location. You know the person, yeah. so, so you've got an in. One of these days, my apartment's going to be a celebrity because it's going to be in everything. Um, but yeah, it was amazing. We had an amazing DP. Um, we kind of what what I've been trying to do with Little Monster Pictures is have a female uh, led team. Like that's really important to me. And try mm-hmm. and find like we had a female DP, a female director, a female sound mixer. Um, and, um, yeah, so, and then female producers. Uh, so I thought that was amazing. And I'm, I'm going to keep trying to do that for each project that we do. I absolutely applaud that. Like Elizabeth Banks and, um, Amy Poehler's production company exactly. is really trying to push female creators because they're out there. They are. And I feel like it's most important for this project in particular off limits. Do you mind briefly talking about what the project is? Yeah. So basically it's a short film, a horror thriller. It's about a girl that starts noticing, um, that there are women going missing in LA through rideshare and her herself, she's had really weird experiences, uh, in uh, her ride share, we call it rides um, uh, instead of Uber or Lyft, but it's the same. That's what it is. Um, and she starts getting really paranoid and her friends don't believe her. They say that, that she's overreacting and that this, that, you know, like the, the, the usual things that you would tell uh, that men or, you know, even family members mm-hmm. would tell a woman, like maybe he didn't mean it that way. Maybe. And so her paranoia keeps growing. She keeps watching the news. Um, there's basically a serial killer that has a, like he, he's, part of a ride share and he's kidnapping and murdering women. Um, and basically we got the idea because we read this article, um, 
that was about, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Not a problem. <laughs> uh, it was an article about how there have been 6,000 cases of sexual assault in Uber between 2017 and 18, which is insane that it's not a bigger deal. Uh, and you're just reading all these cases. There's actually like a woman law firm that's just dedicated to cases for uh, rideshare sexual assaults. It's just crazy, you know? And, and these rideshare companies are trying to hide it and not have better vetting services for their employees. Like that was our main thing. It's just, you know, we're not trying to ban like people not use rideshare. It's just get better at hiring your employees, like how you hire them, how you vet them out. Yeah. And as I understand it, they were hiding those cases yeah. that like it was, they weren't immediately firing these drivers. They were just kind of burying it, brushing it under the rug and relocating them. Exactly. And so it's a little bit like the church. <laughs> the yeah. Church yeah. The yeah. So, so one, that is an awesome horror story, <laughs> but two, because of terrible reasons, yeah. because of the reality of it, yeah. just on paper, that's such a cool horror story that I've never seen. Yeah. I haven't seen anything like, I guess there was that the hitchhiker? No, except then the hitchhiker ended up being the killer. Yeah. So, like the the idea of ride shares yeah. being this really one sided uh, environment where people are taking advantage of every day. Yeah. And there's almost no oversight. So, so I think that's such a cool idea, just creatively. But also, I think that's really important what you're doing with the message of this, of trying to like shine light on the the unfortunately horrific realities of yeah. ride sharing. Yeah. And I, I think on the other side of it too, it's like, you know, as a ride share employee, think about the questions that you're asking people, right? Like, Oh, is this where you live? Like, it's weird. It's like, you're, this person's a stranger to you and they're getting in your car and trusting you. And then you're asked, like, it's don't get too comfortable. Um, and then on the other side of things, as a, a writer, it's like, don't tell them that this is where you live. Like, maybe, like, get off at the next block. You know, just think about, like, because I, I know I've done it. I haven't, I, I've answered questions that I'm, like, later I'm like, I shouldn't have told them that. Like, I shouldn't have told them that I'm on the 10th floor and, and my life story. <laughs> like And and the double standard is real because yeah. I'm, to be completely honest, I have never been worried about telling a person what my home address is. Literally, the concern is I'll give them an address that is like the Ralph's next door because I think they're too stupid to figure out where yeah. my apartment is. Yeah. I'm not, it's not the like fear for yeah. my life. And I mean, I can't imagine what that's like. And yeah. that's awful. Yeah. And it's that's terrifying. really great that you're shining a spotlight on that. I, Thank I'm, you. I would love to see what happens with that. And I would love, is the plan for it to like uh, do the festival circuit? Yeah, we're going to do the festival circuit. We should have it done uh, and edited in the new year. And then what we're hoping to is actually get, uh, get it made into a feature film. Oh, so this is uh, kind of a goal. proof of concept. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the ultimate goal. And I think it could be cool. Um, it that's could really be exciting. a franchise. I don't know. <laughs> we'll Ooh, see. Let's not get be. ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I mean, look what happened with Hatchet and that oh, yeah. weird franchise, that indie horror. That's so yeah. crazy. So anyway, why don't we pivot into the movie that you brought in today? You picked yeah. Stand By Me yeah. from 1986, the Rob Reiner adaptation of the uh, Stephen King short story, which I had never seen. But you uh, said that it was like particularly influential mm -hmm. on you. What did you mean? So for me, Stephen King in himself is extremely influential. He opened up my eyes to that. You, horror films don't just need to be the slasher movies of like, no, not these 80s kind of, uh, you know, B movies or whatever. They can, the characters can have backgrounds. They can be full characters 
um, and their stories of, you know, you can take your time in developing the story and making a good story. And for me, that's what Stand By Me showed me. It, it, it's these kids that got together um, and they're best friends, but they come from all different parts of life. Um, and they get together to just go and find a dead body. And I, for me, that is what cultivated a lot of my storytelling and how I tell stories. Um, so, yeah. That's that's really cool. I've never seen a dead body. Have you? <laughs> no, I have not. Me, me neither. But I imagine based on this movie that it's an extremely formative experience. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like I said, I'd never seen this movie, but I have seen it uh, parodied and yeah. referenced a million times in a million different things. Family Guy, The Simpsons, yeah. um, all, all kinds of things. So I essentially knew what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. It's a coming of age story yep. where four boys find a body, but really find themselves. Uh, so why don't we quickly go over how this movie got made? So in 1982, Stephen King published a collection of novellas in a collection called Different Seasons, one of which was called The Body. It also had Apt Pupil and um, I think Shawshank Redemption in there. And so in 1983, screenwriter Bruce Evans sent his writing partner, Reynolds Gideon's wife, a copy of the collection for her birthday, and they just loved it so much that they got the film rights through Embassy Pictures and got Adrian Lynn of Flashdance to direct. The duo wrote the screenplay over eight weeks, after which Andy Scheinman, who also produced the Rob Reiner-directed The Sure Thing back in 1985, became producer. And when Adrian Lynn left the project, he was replaced with Rob Reiner, who suggested that the story focus on Gordy, which I don't understand. I haven't read the original story. Have you? Uh, I think a long time ago, like in middle school, so I don't remember much about it. So based on that, it sounds like it's kind of an ensemble mm -hmm. story where we're floating in and out of people's consciousness, third-person omniscient. Right. But the movie, uh, apparently from Rob Reiner's suggestion, focuses on Gordy yeah. and gives us his perspective, yeah. which is genius. Yeah. It brings it all home. Yeah. And so Evans and Gideon incorporated that idea into a new script in December of 1984, but by summer of 1985, Embassy was sold to Columbia Pictures, who told them, we're canceling the movie. Oh, no. And so Norman Lear, one of the co-owners of Embassy and the developer for All in the Family, on which Rob Reiner played the character uh, Michael Stivick, a.k.a. Meathead, for many years, gave $7.5 million of his what? own money to complete the film because he just trusted Rob Reiner so much. I love I'm that. glad he did. That's amazing. Could you imagine? That's amazing. Norman Lear is amazing. Could you imagine an angel investor friend of <laughs> yours coming from Mount Olympus and saying, oh, no, here you go. You can finish your movie. Oh, my God. Basically creating, uh, starting all the careers for all these kids, too. I know. And it's funny to think, like, $7.5 million. Wow, that's so much money. I wonder if it was just a drop in the bucket for him right. at the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And so the film was uh, shot over the summer from June to August of 1985 in Oregon and uh, Northern California. The, the Columbia Pictures renamed the film from The Body to Stand By Me, based on another of Rob Reiner's idea. And the film finally released in, 19, in August of 1986, earning well over $52 million, blowing past its $8 million budget. A success by any yeah. account. That's amazing. So, yeah. So why don't we talk about if anybody who hasn't seen the movie, it's a really quick summary in my next segment, which is called, What the Hell Just Happened? <laughs> so in 1959, four white boys of remarkable privilege live in Castle Rock, Oregon, not Maine. They are Gordy, played by Will Wheaton, Chris, played by River Phoenix. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> 
Take a moment. Burn. <laughs> yeah, just take a moment for River Phoenix. Um, and it's so extra sad at the end when he fades away. Oh, and it's like, oh, no, they didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Vern, played by Jerry O'Connell, and Teddy, played by Corey Feldman. All of these kids so young. So young. One day, the four of them go on a two-day hike to find a dead body of a missing boy. And on the way, they have some misadventures that end up bringing them all closer together. And as they all learn more about each other, they also learn more about themselves. And in the end, they find the body and scare off Ace, the bully, and his gang. And the boys go their separate ways, and Gordy becomes a millionaire author. <laughs> The end. Uh, that's that's essentially stand by me. Right. Exactly. No, it's exactly. I just, for me, it it really is that thing of uh, of it, it really is a coming of age story. It really is, and that's what I love so much. And the reason I did pick this was because it cultivated my my um the my love for horror movies. It started with this one, and I know it's not the typical horror movie. It's more a thriller. But it started my journey with Stephen King and then going on to watching it and then going on to, you know, Misery and Carrie and all that. Um, and so that's why this it's so is so important to me. I totally understand that. It's so interesting to watch this movie now and you can see how it inspired it yes. and Stranger Things yes. and some of these other like four boys coming of age yeah. in like uh not miss like mystical circumstances, yeah. but just like, oh, is there death waiting for them out there? Who knows? It's like pretty much a reference to Stand By Me. Yeah. But I have to imagine that there was some version of this even before Stand By Me that mm -hmm. was like maybe even Shakespeare or something yeah. about. Because there's that phrase that I remember learning in AP Lit of buildings Roman, which yeah. is the coming of age yeah. story, the loss of innocence for story. For sure. So... I usually ask my guests what happens after the credits roll for a movie because typically a movie is left kind of open-ended enough where you and I could have these interpretations, but this one tells you it what does. happens. It does tell you, and it's not nice. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it's nicer than the book, apparently, because in the book, they all die. Oh, great. Um, yeah, they, <laughs> like, except for the author. all One of them died in a fire. One of them, Chris, got stabbed, and another one died in, like, a gunfight or something. Oh, my God. Um, but in this one, Vern goes on to be a nobody. Teddy goes on to be homeless. Yeah. And Chris dies. Yeah, trying to save um, someone. I know, which is awful. Trying to be exactly what like everyone thought he couldn't be was a good person. Yeah, it's so sad. But I love, too, that it's like this moment in time that everything, it's like they all were in this moment of time that at that time it was the most important you know, period in their lives. This is it. These are my best friends. They're my family, right? And then, yeah. and look how they like, as they, they hit high school, they all kind of went their separate ways. And it's so true to life. And it's so sad too. It really thing. is. It's this like, I. that's why I thought it would be great if like we could kind of talk about that experience for each of us. Because mm -hmm. I definitely remember I watched this movie and I, even though, you know, it's not, I wasn't in the 50s, yeah. but I couldn't remember that feeling of like, Everything makes sense. I'm the center of the universe. Right? Yeah. Everything's working out. These are my best friends, and they got my back no matter what, even if we, like, fight, and nothing is ever going to change that. We're invincible. Yeah. We're going to live forever. Exactly. <laughs> nothing can stop us. You know, there are, there is magic. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's ghosts. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. There's still mystery in the world. Yeah, like, oh, for all we know, we're arguing over the existence of the Loch Ness Monster, and we still believe Superman is real, oh, but yeah. we know Mighty Mouse isn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love that exchange. Yeah. It makes um, sense, okay? 
Yeah, especially how it comes right off of um, Chris saying, like, you know, you're smarter than the rest of us. He's like, no, I'm not. And then they're like, yeah. Superman's real. Yeah. Mighty Mouse isn't. I love it so much. <laughs> but that's so like just f- from my childhood, when I was 12, I lived in Southern California and I had my friends, Justin, Tim, David and Sam. And it was the four of us. Well, five of us and we (laughs) and we hung out we would always eat lunch at the same place and like on weekends would be the kind of thing where you could just text someone and go what are you doing and you could go over there ride your bike or like yeah there were times like that and then even before that I'm always going to remember this it's so funny it's I had one summer where I have a friend who I cannot tell you their name I don't remember their name but I remember it being like it was like three months. We're like, hey, I'm going to be here. I'm living next door to you. And at the end of the three months, I'm going to leave. <laughs> and it was like, okay, well, let's just hang out. And that was it. And it was amazing. amazing. And I had a lot of fun with him. <laughs> and I have no idea where he is. I don't even remember what he looks like. I don't remember his name. But that's life. Yeah. Sometimes these people come in and out of your life. And Absolutely. they stay for a while. Do you have anything like that? I do. Well, for me, it really was moments in time like that because I moved around so a lot. So in right. when I was living in Greece, I lived there from about the age of 5 to 11. And we... All we would do, especially in the summertime, is ride our bikes outside with all the neighborhood kids till the sun came down, maybe even a little bit after, and until we heard our parents like calling us to come home. And it, it I just remember always being like dirty and drenched in sweat because it was just we were running around and you know we were going to find like more kids to play with. We would do ridiculous stuff too. We would go into like buildings that were they were still building and but the work, <laughs> workers weren't there anymore and we would be like oh there's ghosts in here and you know like be careful one of my friends stood on a rusty nail so then she had to go get a tetanus shot um that's hardcore yeah and then like <laughs> one time you know we used to do the double on the bike like one of us would sit on the steering wheel so my I was riding the bike my friend was on the steering wheel and something happened I went over a bump and she went flying <laughs> off the bike and then I just remember like in Greece and a lot of families own apartment buildings and on each floor is a different, like your aunt lives on this floor. Your, your, your grandpa's on the, yeah. So her whole entire, we fell right in front of her apartment building and her entire family just came running out and it's so dramatic. And they're like carrying her out with sheets and like there's blood (laughs) and like, and the grandma's like, Oh, it's like this whole (laughs) thing. And it's just like, she did hurt herself pretty bad, but it was like scraped up. And I'm like, and I'm on the bike and I'm like, oh no, what did I do? I was going to say, like, they descend on you (laughs) next. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to go home. And they're like, it's better that you go home right now. (laughs) But yeah, like, it was dramatic. Like, like, just, and I remember it being so dramatic in my head. And then the next day we're playing outside again. Like, it was just like that. And then following that, I moved to Thailand. Uh, I lived in Bangkok and I went to the, that was the first time going to an American school. And they have such a community there that around the school, uh, they had neighborhoods. Um, and so we lived in Bangkok in the city, but my friends, all the Americans lived right around the school. And we, so I would stay after school every day and we would ride our bikes. And at nighttime we would like break into the school and then take off our, our, our clothes and run around the track. And then the guards would come and try and find us on their little scooters. And then we would be like, ah, you can't get us. And then we would run out. It was just like ridiculous stuff so yeah that's amazing i have a lot of of, like memories and crazy childhood things yeah and they're so formative because even though they only last like a month or three months or whatever like for me that really formed a lot of like my 
uh, what does inside out call them? Like core personality yeah. traits or whatever. And it's crazy because as a kid, you know, we say now we say it was like only two months or three months, but it really feels like a lifetime. It's like I look yeah. back and I remember things. I'm like, oh, wow, I became best friends with this person over like a month. Right. But it feels like we did everything and went everywhere. And it was like years of being friends together. It's funny how time is when you're a kid. Like I, I can still put myself in a zone where I was I could I was convinced I would never be out of school. That that was it was just going to be eternity. It was I was going to be in school forever. Yeah. And and now I haven't, you know, it's been more years out of school than in school. And it's just it's funny how these change you, that that idea of coming of age. So Absolutely. that that final line of I never had any oh. friends any friends later on, like the ones I had when I was twelve. Jesus, does anyone? I know. Hit so That's hard. That's one of my favorite quotes. It was on my MySpace. It was on it's on my Facebook. It's everywhere. <laughs> and it's so it's, true. It is true. Like I the the friends that I mentioned a second ago were specifically when I was 12, when I was in middle school and like it's that formative like going through yeah. puberty time too where you're so extra sensitive and vulnerable that the friends that do pass all of those tests like really do mean a lot to you. I'll use my I statements. They really meant a lot yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And 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 everything is, like I said, it's just, it feels like this is it. The problem I'm having right now is the end of the world, right? Like this is it. Or we're going on, a, it was like missions. You would go on missions after school and you're like, let's go and do this and ride our bikes here. And like that, you know, like let's go, that guy's hanging out over there. Like it was always like, it was almost like a narrowed, narrowed view, right? Like it yes. was <laughs> like a horse when they have those things. Like I, I'm going <laughs> the that blinders. Yeah, The blinders, yeah. Um, that's how I felt like the moments in my childhood were. It's very sp specific um, moments, yeah. And yet, I always feel like the people in these movies were way cooler than I ever was. I was never smoking and gambling with my friends and shooting guns and nope. stuff. Maybe that's how it was in the 50s. Nope. <laughs> and what I loved about Stand By Me, I don't know if you read this, but uh, Kiefer Sutherland, the entire, which I, I love Kiefer Sutherland, He's great. Uh, he was uh, the entire movie as Ace. He stayed in character. So those kids. And was bullying yeah, them. Yeah. And they were terrified of him the entire movie. So <laughs> that, and, and, they, and at one point they really didn't like him because they're like, he must be really like this. Right. <laughs> so I love that. I love reading those kind of like anecdotes. It's so cool that Rob Reiner created this environment where they have real chemistry, the four of them. Yeah. And it's like what you see in the um, it part one yes. the, and those kids like this palpable chemistry where when you're filming them it really just looks like they're hanging yeah, out exactly and, like whether or not it's scripted and what's so great about what Stephen King does too is you know like I mentioned earlier is creating these characters that you fall in love with and that you understand because each of these characters have a little bit of you in them right like that's what makes mm -hmm. you know these these uh ensemble pieces so great and then he does a perfect perfect thing of breaking your heart because he kills them or something bad happens to them and it's just like ah oh, Stephen King you got me right in the heart how does he do that that's know. actually a great segue into my next segment which is uh screaming themes <laughs> where we talk about some of the themes that came up in this mm. movie and specifically yeah that um so so you you mentioned at the beginning of like this is like a great nostalgia trip yeah. of like going back and I really just want to hit on this briefly it's not something that I want to make the whole episode mm -hmm. about but um you know so the framing device has an adult Gordy reminiscing yeah. about his past and his childhood friends when things were great when there were zero black people in the movie or women 
and it's just a bunch of white straight boys literally being invincible. Yeah. I mean, Ace gets away with crimes that that would never fly in Lovecraft Country. Nope, nope. Oh. <laughs> uh. And so I can't help but watch this movie with just a little bit of like. Oh, absolutely. This doesn't exactly apply to me. No. But it's it's still fun. Yeah. And I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. No, I just to absolutely. And I love that you mentioned Lovecraft because that's what I'm watching right now. And it's like, oh, it's so oh good. you will get punished if this isn't Lovecraft. But I agree with you. I think I think a lot of it relates to Stephen King and his upbringing. Um, and that, that's why Castle Rock and May, but like this one was in Oregon, not me. But um, I think that was his world growing up, right? And the and and it is that whole thing of I, I mean, the, America was great for a certain amount of certain kinds of people back then, right? So, mm -hmm. but we should still be able to tell stories from how we were brought up. I, I, oh, I think you so. You know, um, but at the same time, I mean, I feel like if he had, they do mention it a little bit, like they do, but they do it from the point of view of Ace and and you know, women. Like I think they talk about like Jewish women and and stuff like that. Like yeah, yeah. So throwaway yeah, lines. it throwaway lines here and there. But yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't I don't think it was a whole view, but it was from coming from a certain view of um, Stephen King's world back then. I agree. I'm not. I wouldn't go so far as to say that Stephen King has an agenda to push yeah. America was great. <laughs> yeah. You know, like oh back no, when he I've been reading this. his Twitter. Man, he's not definitely. He's definitely not one of those. Yeah, even when he does make a mistake, he's very yes. quick to say like, no, 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 no. That's not what yes. I meant. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Yes, yes. <laughs> if only um, you know, J.K. Rowling could be that reactionary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, the real themes obviously are the biggest one is uh, coming of age and the loss of innocence. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of like little moments, but this isn't a silly like story of a bunch of kids being wacky like the Goonies no. or Little Rascals even. This is a story about boys becoming men yeah. in a world like that nature on they're going into nature and meeting nature on its own terms in the form of the leeches and the train even though it's not a part of nature it's still a part of the nature that they're involved in um and so i guess go go ahead Sorry, i was just gonna say it's also a post-war world too right so they're they're a family oh. so they have their like fathers or grandfathers have also already proved their worth like as a man so these boys are growing up in a world that's post-war and they have to figure out how they can do that. And and there's a lot of pressure that's on them as well, um, I think. Oh, you're absolutely right. The um, the like kind of secondary theme of overcoming expectations, where Gordy overcomes his father's expectations of him uh, to to not suck. His dad's a jerk. Yeah. His, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Exactly. And and him having to deal with something that as a kid you hope your kids don't deal with. It's like the death of a sibling, and that mm -hmm. brings him that makes him grow up too. Cause he's taking care of the family in a way too. And his role models are coping with it in a terrible way where they're openly like abusing him. Yeah. I mean, in a and neglectful sh and way. And showing that he isn't as important, right? Like it's like, Oh, you know, they're clearly telling and showing him that he wasn't the favorite, <laughs> that there yeah. was a favorite. So of course Gordy would naturally like adhere to anyone who supported his real talents and his real wants of being a writer. And that was his brother, um, play, uh, Denny played by John Cusack, also one of my which favorites. that was a surprise. Yeah, yeah. I love John Cusack. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I thought, Oh, I'd be upset too. John Cusack's yeah. a way better actor than Will Wheaton. <laughs> oh my God. That's so true. No a, offense, a, no a, young, offense. a young John Cusack could have played that role, I think, of Gordy. Like, I really do think so. 
Yeah. Um, that said, the kids are so young in this movie, they are all unrecognizable. Will Wheaton doesn't look like Will Wheaton. He looks like a like the child. Uh, Chris doesn't look anything like, um, you know, the River Phoenix yeah. that we come to know. Yeah. Uh, My private and even, Idaho will. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And Jerry O'Connell disappears in what they call the fat kid. That is not fat by any no. standards. It sucks. Like, if anything, the other kids are kind of spindly. Yeah, like Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman had a little mm-hmm. pudge on him. So Teddy, yeah, Corey Feldman, Teddy overcomes, I guess, his, like, dad's, like you're saying, yeah. is his dad proved his worth by dying? He died in the war? I, he, or he no, went, he's no, a loony. He, That's he, right. He, he came went back. Crazy. He had PTSD, which back then they didn't have. They called it uh, shell shock, I think. Uh, ah. Yeah. And so that's why uh, Pressman, the guy who owns the junkyard, calls him a loony and that he's, he's going to be a loony just yeah. like his dad. And so Teddy doesn't really overcome that, unfortunately. No. And I think that's why they he, kind of the ending that he gets is that he didn't grow, that he was stuck in that. Right. There wasn't much. Yeah. And that's what that's what River Phoenix's character Chris talks about. It's like we're we're stuck here. You're not. You have the chance to get out of this. Yeah, and I think it's a kind of a double entendre of not only are we stuck here in this town, we're stuck in our childhoods. We're never going to develop like you are. Yeah, and um, I've seen that through friends of you know like my childhood and stuff. It's just it's you're given certain certain circumstances and hands in life that you know either you can grow out of it or you don't. And it's just the way that life is. It really is. And it's not even something to vilify, no, essentially. No, if you yeah. if your ambitions involve staying put and being comfortable exactly. and having a life, like that's not that doesn't make you an unachiever no, or whatever. It no. It's just but you the, like the movie kind you're of in implies. a bubble and you like your bubble, right? Like it's just like I'm comfortable here and this is what I want. I want to be close to my family. I want to be close to the friends that I grew up with. Like I am comfortable here in a lot of towns here in america have that small towns yeah and so like the idea of moving away going to college or something coming back and seeing like your high school bully working at the pizza shop or something (laughs) and feeling internally like oh i developed i'm better than them it's kind of and you know what's crazy to you like that moment is so you remember that moment so so you come back at that moment is so still prominent to you but they they their life is kind of like yeah that happened in middle school but now you know we're all friends and and yeah but yeah, like we all moved on with our lives, hopefully. Yeah. And so that that idea of like overcoming expectations is gives way to what I love about this movie is, and what I imagine a lot of like, I could see a lot of college guys having a poster of Scarface and Stand By Me in their dorm and going like, man, this movie, me and my bros were just like them. <laughs> but I love that it actually gives room for the emotional male, yes. as I put in quotes. Yeah. Because that should not be a thing, the emotional male. People are emotional. People have emotions. Yeah. And this movie like pushes Gordy and Chris specifically into these corners where they can't talk to their parents. They can't talk to anybody but these close friends of theirs. And they cry. They're not afraid to cry and be affectionate. It's heartbreaking. And it's still... And it's something... It still exists today, right? Like, how do you... What is the right way to be a man, right? And that's why you have a lot of... uh, of men go from it's 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 anger or happiness right like you those are the two emotions that men are allowed to show show right yeah. so it's just it's crazy that the like societal expectation yeah. of you burdening things without ever admitting the pain it might be causing exactly. you exactly you're just you tough it out you rub some dirt in it and so those two moments like 
I almost cried. Uh, the first one specifically when uh, Chris is like, I wish I could move somewhere where nobody knew who I was. I don't know about you, but I've definitely felt that hard oh, yeah. about wanting to just start over. Yeah. yeah. I used to want to go to a boarding school because I was like, no one's going to know me here. I don't, I can be a grown up almost. And you know, I could just start, start over. When I was 17, I went to a uh, uh, acting camp in France and I told everyone my name was Nikki. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you actually experimented I changing did. your identity. But the problem was I would never respond. And when people would call me, they'd be like, Nikki. I'm like, what? what? Oh, that's me. <laughs> so, yeah, I totally get that feeling. I told it's a teenager, too. Like, you make mistakes, stuff happens, but it's stuck with you. And, and kids fixate on that stuff. Yeah. And so, like, the the opportunity for them to be supportive and platonically affectionate was something that, like, uh, growing up, I, I hated that I couldn't like hug my friends like that. And I hate, and I resented that girls were allowed to be openly physically affectionate with each other and like hug and cuddle and whatever. And I was not allowed to do that. And it wasn't enough that like, I wasn't really into sports, you know, it was, and plus I'm gay. So I was dealing with that growing up, but that, that image of Gordy and Chris having each other like that is so is a thing that I feel like a lot of people are afraid to admit maybe. And so this movie is such a cathartic place to see these two kids being openly like emotionally and physically supportive of each other when, when they're crying and I'm watching that. And all I can do is think about some of my best friends in my life and how I was literally doing that. I was crying, bawling about something that had nothing to do with them, but they were there and they were listening to me and they were supporting me. Yeah. And it's honest moments, right? It's like that age is for me is just raw and honest and you're going through so much. And if you really think about it, you weren't alone because your friends are going through it too. So you're all, you're all, you know, like it is, it creates this, this bonding, this bonding that you will never have again. Because it is yeah. such an important part in your life of these emotions are insane. I don't understand what's happening. You know, um, the, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of one of, um, you know, how like times change with technology and stuff. But like one of my formative, like, you know, dangerous experiences was chatting with people online, mm -hmm. you know, and finding this environment where there were other gay teenagers who were afraid of the world that we could finally like talk and interact with yeah. each other. And I feel like that helped me a lot at a time when I don't know, it's Southern California, but I still lived in Irvine in my bubble and it was the nineties. So it was mm -hmm. hard to like be honest and reach out with people. Even when I did find my like circle it wasn't until I got to college that I realized, oh, shoot, this is what friends are. Yeah. Friends don't make fun of you all the time and blow you off when you want to get lunch or something. They're actually there for you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, to circle back to the coming of age story, there's some big moments through the movie. Uh, one that I wanted to highlight is the leeches and how it's yeah. this disgusting, fun moment of, oh, we're kids. We're testing out the waters and, oh, no, we've gone in above our heads. We don't know what we're doing. But like you said so well, everything is like on the surface. They don't hide anything. Yeah. So when the leeches are on them, oh they strip God. and they're freaking out and they're getting all of the leeches off of them. But it isn't until Will Wheaton, Gordy, <laughs> finds the leech 
in his underwear and sees the blood that he faints. And that's such a beautiful. And he pulls it out too. And he's like, oh. <laughs> that's such a beautiful symbol, symbol of menstruation. And these people, these children coming of age. And in all of my research on the internet, I couldn't find anyone who made that connection. Yeah. I don't understand if people are ignoring it, but it seems so obvious to me. He had his period. Yeah, yeah. He's going through puberty with his friends. They're all going through puberty. And it's gross. Like, for them, it's gross because they don't understand it. And it's, and it, But they're going through it together. Um, I just remember that moment being so... It's one of the moments I always remember. And I remember it being such a significant moment the first mo- time I watched that movie. And I don't... It was like... I think it was the idea that something crazy is happening to them. They're experiencing it together. And it's something they will always remember. It is this... Yeah. I don't know why it really was. It's the moment I always remember when I think about that movie. Well, it's great. It's the moment when uh, nature is sucking the youth out of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, let's not talk. Like, let's not forget that they're on their way to find a dead body. But all these crazy things are happening to them along the way. Yeah. Including the train, which represents oh the very real threat of death. Yeah. And it's fun how the first time we see the train, Teddy is unafraid allegedly you know and is standing there welcoming death almost he's facing the train head on and it takes his friends to pull him away implying that kind of unstable nice suicidal mentality that poor teddy is dealing with and then the second time we see it he is scared and it's coming right for them and they're running (laughs) (laughs) i love poor Vern. too oh my god yeah (laughs) crawling yeah (laughs) he was so good he's like oh i dropped the comb guys (laughs) like okay so i wanted to i wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the deer it's a really small moment that like if you went to the bathroom you would miss it but the deer shows up and i feel like it could be interpreted in a couple of ways i saw it as like oh it's this representation of something natural and beautiful unmarred by any of society's expectations or parents or anything it is true like nature on nature's terms which is like the the representation of what they've stepped into that they're experiencing this you know coming of age into true freedom and gordy keeping it to himself kind of represents that this is his story and that's not really something for him to share if they're going to see a deer it's for them to see and for them to decide if they're going to share Mm -hmm. what did you think of that yeah, for me, I would definitely agree with most of what you said. I also saw it as a uh, like a moment. For me, a deer always represents innocence as well, which adds to that ah. name. Na- but it's like his innocence is it's still there, um, and that's his moment that he had, um, and that's what I see in a deer. It's just it's this this. It, it, again, it's like you said, like it hasn't been touched by, uh, you know, like. Th- society or parents or anything and he he still has a little bit that that innocence will always be there and I think that kind of connects to you know like Richard Dreyfus when he's telling the story when he's older that that nostalgia I think that innocence is still there too you know even though it's like a little bit the kid will always be in us for me that's that's what it represented I like that I'd never thought of the deer as a mirror of will of Gordy's innocence of of or like yeah, I've never thought about the the idea of it reflecting him. Yeah, and like, I like that because it it really resonated with me because when I I was a Boy Scout and when I went to Oregon for a summer camp trip, I fell in love. And to this day, I've told myself I will retire to Oregon someday. That's where I'm going to die. Uh, but it 
me specifically, I've just the older I've gotten and the more I've like experimented with Eastern religions and things and alternative philosophies, I keep coming back to nature and the universe being this like unaffected entity that I, I there's nothing I could do yeah. to influence yeah, you feel, the universe. It makes you feel kind of small. <laughs> But also part of yeah, everything. Yeah. It makes me feel very small and part of everything. And it's something that, like, I've been reading a lot of Alan Watts recently. And that idea that, like, we we are all atoms of the universe. Connected. Like, we're all we're all feeling the same thing all at the same time. And, and the deer is Gordy, I guess, in that moment, if, if I'm being even more poetic. Yeah, and I think it's also this thing of um, it's all this ugliness is happening around him. Right. And that it just, it's kind of, it, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. It's like the universe is kind of coming back to him and giving him this peaceful moment of seeing himself reflected. Like there is still, don't let this ugliness overcome you. Right. Like there's still this innocence. There's still this, you know, like here it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the universe telling him you're doing the right thing. And I think it's like after that, that he really tells them or in the monologue, he says, uh, I don't know. I, I would have gone to see the body even if they hadn't followed, I think is like that moment because that's when he realizes I have to face my brother's death. And that's when we finally get to the body, which is Gordy's chance to face not just death, but his brother's death, which he really hasn't had a chance to properly cope with. And now that he has, he's free to aim the gun at Ace and to protect his friends to demonstrate that he now knows what death is, can do, and he's in control of it which is like the icing on the cake and gives way to the plot hole of Ace either forgot about this event, <laughs> like he said he wouldn't, or got distracted and moved on with his life. Which I, I see the latter more as a, <laughs> like a teenager, yeah. just like whatever. <laughs> yeah, like a bully would threaten you and say, you're dead, tomorrow you're dead. And then they wake up and it's like, oh, I think I'll go to the pool today. Yeah. But the kid's going to be like, oh yeah. my God, he's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. You're not the center of his universe. <laughs> yeah. But I like how the body also represents like a chance for the boys. Cause the whole thing is they're racing to the body so that they can be the one to call yeah. the cops and yeah. reveal uh, who, who found the body or whatever. And so it's a chance for them to be somebody in this town the instead heroes. of a bunch of nobodies. Yeah. Yeah. Heroes. Yeah, exactly. Instead of losers, like the losers club, like the losers club. Yeah. <laughs> exactly but i love so like a little li a little bit on a tangent but i love that the that they ex and and it they accept that club right like it's like we're they're losers and we love that and i love and i think it's also stand by me has that thing like accepting who you are stop trying to be someone you're not right like and as kids we're always yeah. comparing ourselves to everyone else and they're cooler and you know that they're you know like and that's the thing with gordy like he was always compared to his brother why can't you be like your brother why can't you be you know and it's just like and chris kind of like takes it the mirror up to him and he's like you're fine you're perfect not perfect but you are who you are and you're amazing and and accept that and i think that's a lot of what the movie is it's like coming to this realization of that gordy is great who he is you know like coming to terms yeah, with accept yourself. accepting yourself on on your own terms cuz cuz I don't know if you've ever experienced this but there's also that that they play with the guilt of being I hate to say it but more intelligent than some of your peers 
having more opportunities than some of your peers and feeling that guilt of like, what do I let go of so I can still be equals with my friends versus like, what do I, it's so true. It's like, what do you, you like as growing up, you're like, how can I be more like these people? What do I let go of as a teenager so they can accept me more? And it's so sad at the same time because it's like, no, don't let go of your identity, you know? But it is, I, I felt that as a teenager. Like, how can I connect to these girls, the popular girls? What can I do to change myself? And, you know, is it my hair? You know, is it superficial stuff? Or is it, I don't talk about horror movies as much or skateboarding or, you know, like, what is it that I can connect to these girls? And and it's so easy to trick yourself into thinking that they're happier than you mm-hmm. because of their, like, you can look at Jerry O'Connell and, um, uh, Corey, <laughs> what's his name? Yeah. Uh, Corey Ted, Feldman. Yeah. Teddy. Jerry O'Connell and Corey Feldman, Teddy, you could see the two of them as like being blissfully dumb yeah. as like, they, they aren't crying and they, they aren't holding each other and they don't, but they also, they're okay with their, like, I can't. It's, they've accepted their circumstances. That's what I felt. Teddy has those, violently accepted yeah, his that's, circumstances. And that's the other thing we were talking about. There are people that are, you know, like, and there's nothing wrong with them accepting their circumstances too. I think it's showing. Um, yeah. It's the societal expectations yes, of exactly. like, okay, you're a child. You have to be better than your parents. Exactly. At least. And if you're not better than your parents, then you're failing, even as a 12-year-old. And that kind of like responsibility to carry on yourselves, it's so easy to look at and say the grass must be greener. Look yeah. at them. They are not talented. They're not worried about what their options are after college. They're not going to college. They're going to work at like their dad's mechanic place. And it's so easy to think that that's better than being emotional and and having to like write to, to make you happy, which is like this thing that's uh, supposed to be for girls or whatever. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. But it's a great movie. So that brings (laughs) us to the last segment where we rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. Kathy, what did you think of Stand By Me? Uh, I hate these kind of things. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, my mom's like always like, don't ask Kathy because she loves everything. Uh, I always will find the good in everything before I start critiquing it. I would say, for me, this is a 4.5 out of 5. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I love it. Do you yeah. want to say why? Um, uh, as a personal, it just I connected to it a lot. Even though it was little boys telling their story, um, I still connected to that. Um, I I fell in love with the characters that were created. I thought that they were so well built out. We knew exactly who these people were. The world was built out really well as well. Um, and I just loved the story. And, you know, the it was, for me, it was like the horrors of life, the horrors of adulthood, the horrors of growing up um, and accepting that. And, um, and uh, the nostalgia of your childhood and how you can't go back in time and experience that again. It's just, it had everything for me that I, I love um, in movies and in storytelling. And it's Stephen King. Um, and I, yeah, I just loved it. That, it's just everything about that period in time too uh, was everything for me. Um, I, all the, you know, River, uh, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, like they all were big, significant um, like the Goonies is one of my other favorite movies as well. Um, so I just, I, maybe I'm a little biased on it, but I, it, it had everything to me that makes a good movie and a good story. Um, uh, and um, yeah, amazing storytelling. 
but you didn't give it five thumbs. I did. So what is it missing? Um, (laughs) I'm going to pull it out of you. I know. No, honestly, it is like, I hate that we tell these, I don't. I don't know. I just wish there maybe there, and it's maybe it's I'm sounding a little weird on it, but I just wish there were more stories with girls and girls' childhoods, you know, coming. But I understand like boys hang out with boys and girls hang out with boys, and that's why we also have now and then. Um, but that's the only thing that was missing for me. I just wish there was a girl, like in the Losers Club, there is a girl. Um, that's what was missing for me. I just wish that there was another. I yeah. think it would have added a lot more to it too. That's why I like shows like Pen Fifteen. Oh, Hopefully, I we're going to be getting 15. more shows like that. That like, oh, I love <laughs> so it so much. Good. It's I a like, world that I have never seen. Oh, and I'm like, that was me. Like, I was that not. Was me. <laughs> I, I, it's so honest. It's so obvious that they wrote what they went through, oh, and yeah. here I was, you know, a 13 year old, completely oblivious to the like massively complex yeah. relationships that you have with your friends also going through puberty. It yeah. seems like a nightmare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, it's insane. So then it's <laughs> what we went like, <laughs> uh, it, and it's, it's crazy that that is one of the only the few stories that we've gotten since. And now and then, I don't know if you know, have seen that movie. It's like the, the, the mm-hmm, female version of stand by me. And it's, uh, it's, uh, Christina Ricci, Thora Birch. It's all these girls from the nineties. Uh, but it was missing that kind of like a little bit on the, you know, like puberty part. Uh, I think people are always scared to to touch on that with when it comes to women. I think so, too. I mean, look at cuties yes, uh, at Netflix example. and all the uh, controversy. Ugh. It's a double standard. It's that, a double standard. It really sucks, unfortunately. So, I mean, because we have this movie where these kids are in their underwear, but, you know, <laughs> having cuties in 2020 is... Annette's boobs from the Disney Club, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're kids. They're kids. They they're going uh, like through puberty. They're getting all these crazy feelings and hormones, and it's natural and it's okay to talk about. <laughs> yeah, Will Wheaton seems to think he has the fattest one in four counties. Oh my god. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> We typically award the thumbs to either crew or cast or even characters in the movie. So who are you going to give your four and a half thumbs to? Uh, I would give it to the cast. Oh, just split it up? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would give it all to the cast. <laughs> well, then I guess it's my turn. Yeah. So this was my first time seeing Stand By Me. I've seen a lot of other Rob Reiner work, so I knew it was good, but... I've also seen quotes that said this was his favorite movie that he's made, and he thinks this is the best movie he's ever made. Mm -hmm. I can see why. I thought going into it that I was going to be looking at my phone and that there were going to be a lot of low moments, but the way that it's paced, I was never bored. And there was always something happening that that either had me thinking about my life, because like you said, even though it's four white straight boys, the themes are very universal that I could find myself in all four of them and that's i don't know if that's a testament to stephen king's original work or rob reiner's ability to put them in like human skin but all of it together is really great that said i'm gonna give it three thumbs (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because it's good and it's got all of those universal themes and stuff and it just doesn't apply to me. It's great. Yeah. It's great that it's like, oh, it's it. But it to me, it's not. It's it's a an American fairy tale in that way, and oh, it's yeah. like this beautiful, fun little 
vignette about these four boys in a world where there are no problems and that's what it's supposed to be about but that kind of falls flat on me when in 2020 now oh yeah maybe if i'd watched this 10 years ago but now having watched lovecraft country and personally expanding my uh black filmmaker like pedigree Mm -hmm. i've been watching a lot of stuff recently just trying to at least it's hard for me to appreciate, you know, in a five out of five scenario, the kind of um, it's it's hard to say because it is a product of its time. It's not whitewashing. It's not implying that, like, there were no blacks anywhere, but there were no blacks in this town. And whether or not it's, you know, and the way that they're brought up, too, like I said, their worlds are very narrow when you're growing up as well. But I totally understand what you're yeah. saying. That's the same thing I felt with, you know, with women character or like having another a woman character in it to connect with. So I'm. So I'm going to give it three thumbs, and I'm going to award my thumbs. I'm going to give one to Will Wheaton because he does a great job. His crying scene hits harder than Chris's, even though I, I, I didn't cry. It was definitely like one of the hardest moments where he's saying, my dad hates me. My dad hates me. It's just I, it, they feel like children really crying, more yeah. so than almost any adult I've seen do a crying scene. And that, that was amazing. So I got to give one to him. I got to give one to the late River Phoenix because he also does a great job uh, with everything that he does here. And then I'm going to give my last thumb to, let's see, who's left? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it to Corey Feldman yeah. because I feel very bad for him because I'm yeah. sure it was happening during this film, but we're not going to go there. Instead, oh, man. that's it. Thank you for listening to The Gory Days. <laughs> Let's end on so that Kathy, note. <laughs> if people, yeah, seriously, what better way? If people wanted to find you online, where could they follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. I have, it's at Kiritsis. Um, that's C-K-Y-R-I-T-S-I-S. And then at Little Monster Pictures, all on Instagram. That's great. Uh, I also have a uh, Little Monsters website. It's just www.littlemonsterpictures.com. Perfect. We'll have all of that in the episode description. Otherwise, thanks for listening to another episode of The Gory Days. This was uh, so fun. Uh, we'll be back next. Oh, I'm so happy that you could come. Yeah, <laughs> and I would love to have you and Jen back yes. together to talk a little bit about Off Limits, hopefully, once that's uh, all finished. Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. That, that would be amazing. Yeah. But yeah, until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days. The Gory Days. The Gory Days.